0: This is African News Tonight on the Voice of America.
1: Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yahia Suheib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight.
2: Africa is the continent of the future as populations begins to climb in Europe and in Asia. That's VOA,
1: uh, wi- that, uh, William Gla- Glaston, Chair and Senior Fellow in the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program, talking about the possibility President Biden might mention the new U.S.-Africa relations in his State of the Union address tonight. Details coming up. Also, Among the survivors pulled from the rubble in Turkey is Ghana footballer Christian Atsu. And 16 Nigerian pilgrims were killed while crossing Burkina Faso on their way to Senegal. These stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story, Nigerian authorities have vowed to provide justice after armed men in Burkina Faso attacked a group of Nigerian pilgrims on their way to Senegal, killing at least 16. Burkina Faso's military government launched an investigation of yesterday's attack in an area known as Islamist militants. Uh, Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria.
0: The Nigerian presidency said in a statement that Authorities are in talks with Burkinabi counterparts and are waiting for the outcome of their probe before they take action. President Muhammadu Buhari condemned the killing and expressed his condolences to the families of the victims. Authorities also pledged to secure the remains of the deceased. Nigerian pilgrims were in convoy of buses bound for Kaulak, Senegal, when they were stopped by heavily armed men in military uniforms. The men forced the passengers out of the buses, selected 16 pilgrims at random, and shot them to death. Burkina Faso authorities refute allegations the killers are members of their security forces. Abuja-based beacon security analyst Kabira Damu says it may be too early to point a finger.
3: Around 2019 up until now, the intensity of terror attacks in that country has increased tremendously. So seeing persons in military uniform um, may not be enough to conclude that they are, um, you know, state officials, just like it happens in Nigeria, non-state actors sometimes dress in public security uniforms and come out to, uh, to carry out their atrocities.
0: Burkina Faso and its neighbors, Mali and Niger, have been battling armed groups with links to Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. The fighting is mainly in the country's northern region where hundreds of villagers have been killed and nearly two million displaced. Last week, at least 10 civilians were killed in two attacks in the west central town of Dassa. Security analyst Senator Irebu says Nigerian authorities and citizens must take travel advisories seriously. This also boils
3: down to the issue of negligence on the part of the government and uh, ignorance also on the part of the citizens. What kind of travel advisory has federal government given to the citizens that want to embark on such journey? We know that the Sahel region, all these countries, have been brought in conflict.
0: It's not clear when Burkina Faso authorities will present the outcome of the probe, but Adamu suggests the Nigerian government could employ multilateral relations to address the problem.
3: We can invite the ambassador of Burkina Faso to Nigeria and request formally for an investigation. The other option is multilateral. Since we are, mem- we are members of several multilateral platforms, Nigeria can also use that. Number one is ECOWAS, the EU, and then number three is the UN. It's absolutely important that these multilateral platforms are pursued for the simple reason that the issue probably has to do with terrorism.
0: That's the major challenge in Burkina, Faso. Burkina Faso is also facing growing political instability from coups in the last year alone. On Tuesday, the United Nations said poverty and the prospect of better paid work rather than ideology are fueling recruitment to jihadists and other violent groups in Africa, casting doubt on assertions that religious doctrine is the main reason for continued trouble. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria.
1: UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, has visited Ethiopia's Tigray region and met with some of those displaced by the two-year conflict. Maya Misakir reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.
4: UN High Commissioner for Refugees Filippo Grandi has visited refugees and displaced communities in Ethiopia. The High Commissioner, who arrived in Ethiopia on February 5, has since met with the President of Ethiopia and travelled to capital of Tigray region to meet with families displaced by the conflict. The High Commissioner's trip in Ethiopia also included meeting Eritrean refugees in Alamot camp in Amhara. Eritrean refugees in Ethiopia have faced targeted attacks over the past two years of war. In December, the UNHCR, in collaboration with partners, relocated 7,000 Eritrean refugees from western Tigray to Alamwaj. Though access for aid to Tigray has improved since a peace deal was signed between the federal government and Tigray forces, resources remain limited compared to the high needs, according to a UN report. After the peace agreement, humanitarian agencies can deliver more aid in areas of northern Ethiopia impacted by conflict, said the High Commissioner through a statement made on Twitter. Since the November peace deal, the federal government has restored basic services and humanitarian aid to the region. As part of the deal, Tigrayan fighters have handed over heavy weapons to the federal government, while Amhara Special Forces have left the Tigray region. On February 3, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed met with TPLF leaders for the first time to discuss the implementation of the peace deal. Mayam Sikr for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.
1: President Biden will deliver his second State of the Union address this evening as the third year of his presidency gets underway. It will be his first address to a divided Congress. William A. Galston is chair in the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program, where he serves as a senior fellow. He is also the author of nine books and more than 100 articles in the fields of political theory, public policy, and American politics. In talking to me, he first explains what the U.S. State of the Union is all about.
2: The U.S. Constitution says that the president shall, from time to time, provide information to Congress and the American people on the State of the Union. Uh, Early in American history, that took the form of an annual written document delivered to the Congress. Uh, But more than a century ago, President Woodrow Wilson, whom your listeners may recognize as one of the authors of the League of Nations, decided to make the journey from the White House to Capitol Hill, the seat of Congress, to deliver this message in person. And ever since, with just a few exceptions on an annual basis, the president appears before the Congress of the United States to deliver a speech uh, describing the state of the country and outlining his legislative and policy plans for the coming year. That is what Mr. Biden our current president will be doing tonight
1: you you are an expert in the fields of political theory public policy and american politics so this evening when president biden talks to the nation what do you think he will be talking about especially in the in the realm of uh, foreign policy
2: well i am quite sure that Mr. Biden will be talking about the principal defense and security challenges that the United States faces in Europe, particularly the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and in the East Asian and Pacific region, the growing threat to stability and security posed by the People's Republic of China, the threat to Taiwan, but more broadly to the stability of the international system in, in that region. I do not know whether he will touch on the situation in other parts of the world or America's relationships with nations in South America and Africa. Sometimes the president will choose to do that if there's a specific security uh, or economic issue, but otherwise not.
1: Now that you mentioned Africa, especially the rapprochement with Africa, uh, he had a summit with the African leaders in December, and lately his his Treasury Secretary, Ellen, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., was in Africa. Don't you think that is... um, Something he could maybe talk about. Uh, It was like an accomplishment.
2: Well, it was certainly a determined push by the Biden administration to get the United States back into uh, the development of economic and political relations with Africa after a period of what I think would be fair to describe as neglect. I think most people in the administration understand that during the period of American neglect of Africa, that the People's Republic of China made a very determined push to raise its profile, especially its economic profile in Africa. Africa is the continent of the future as populations begin to decline in Europe and in Asia though the wealth of young people in Africa young talent pools of workers uh, to be put together with investment capital to increase production all of this suggests that that addressing relations with Africa is part and a central part of planning for the future but as I said, if the president mentioned Everything in the State of the Union address, it would go on for hours and hours and hours. In some countries, it's okay if leaders speak for three or four hours, <laughs> uh, yes. but not but not in the United States.
1: <laughs> that was William A. Galston, Chair of the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program. He talked to me here from Washington, D.C. You're listening to African News Tonight on the Voice of America. Rescue crews in Turkey and Syria rushed today to find survivors buried in the rubble of buildings toppled by powerful earthquakes that left more than 5,000 people dead. Among those pulled out alive was footballer Christian Atsu, who has appeared in 65 international matches for Ghana and currently plays professionally in Turkey after stints with four British teams. The 31-year-old Atsu is being treated for injuries sustained when a building collapsed in Hatay, which was close to the quake's epicenter. After a night in which temperatures fell close to freezing, more than 20 quakes of magnitude 4.0 or greater shook the area along the border between the two countries. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan declared seven days of national mourning. Countries around the world were rushing assistance to Turkey. A White House statement said President Joe Biden spoke with Erdogan yesterday and said the United States will send... Any and all aid needed to help. A new report by the UN Development Programme, UNDP, warns violent extremism is growing in sub-Saharan Africa and is threatening to reverse hard-worn development gains for generations to come. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva.
5: Sub-Saharan Africa has emerged as the new global epicenter of violent extremism, with nearly half of global terrorism deaths in 2021. More than one-third of these deaths have occurred in just four countries, Somalia, Burkina Faso, Niger, and Mali. Nearly 2,200 men and women in these four African countries, as well as four others, Cameroon, Chad, Nigeria, and Sudan, were interviewed for the UNDP study, which aims to explain the problem. Data from the research sheds new light on what drives people to join fast-growing, violent extremist groups. Lead author of the report, Narina Kiplagat, says work, not religion, is the main driving force. She says one quarter of voluntary recruits cited job opportunities and the urgent need for livelihoods as their primary reason for joining extremist groups. In terms of religious ideology, it's only 17% that cited religious ideologies for the primary reason motivating them to join. It's also worth noting that there is a difference um, between men and women in the responses, and less women cite ideological reasons and tend to join more with family and specifically their husbands. The report also finds that an extra year in school decreases the odds of voluntary recruitment by 30%. Between 2017 and 2021, the report notes extremist groups were responsible for 4,155 attacks and 18,417 fatalities. While UNDP Administrator Achim Steiner says these numbers are alarming, he thinks too much emphasis is being placed on security-driven militarized responses to counter violent extremism. He says militarized approaches often exacerbate the problem, yet they continue to be the preferred method of tackling extremist groups in sub-Saharan Africa.
6: Half of the respondents cited a specific trigger event that pushed them to join violent extremist groups and a striking 71% of those pointing to human rights abuse often conducted by the state security forces as a tipping point.
5: The report recommends greater investment in basic services, including child welfare, education, good quality livelihoods, and investing in young men and women to counter and prevent violent extremism. Research shows those who decide to detach from violent extremism are less likely to rejoin and recruit others. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva.
1: The flurry of military coup d'etats across Africa in recent years has disrupted U.S. strategy to promote democracy and human rights across the continent. Military officers have seized control in countries including Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, and Sudan. Traditional pressure in the form of sanctions and political isolation has largely failed to dislodge them. Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, discussed with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi what's needed to counter this trend.
6: First, I would say that the track record is mixed. I think the steps taken by regional and international actors to sanction isolate coup makers often is inconsistent. For example, in the Sahel, after condemning the coups, ECOWAS often effectively recognized them while giving junta leaders a deadline to move forward with the transition, all the while leaving it up to the juntas to organize their own transitions. And then when the juntas have made no effort to do so, ECOWAS simply extended the deadline for them to remain in power. I think we're seeing similar patterns elsewhere on the continent with the effect that military leaders with political ambitions are now seeing the option of ceasing power as a valid way forward which you know, hadn't been the case over the previous two decades as we've seen a move towards democratization on the continent. So that's partly why we've seen the increase in the spate of coups. I think it's Come back up out onto the table as a as a viable option in the minds of some military leaders. Now, to counter that trend, regional and international actors are, have to be more resolute and send a, a clear message that coups are not a viable option. You know, and history shows how bad military governments have been for Africa, deteriorating governance, instability, and, and development in places where they've held onto power. And this has contributed to the lost decades of the 1980s and 90s that you know many people have characterized for parts of the continent. So it's in nobody's interest to see this trend towards coups and military governments get more traction. Now, I would say that there are occasions when pressure has been effective, and I would cite the example of Sudan, where consistent international and regional pressure on the military government there has forced it to engage with and negotiate with civilians for a transition. The Sudanese military recognizes that it's not going to receive the political recognition or economic support needed to stabilize the country, which which the military, by the way, has effectively run for the past 30 years. So, that realization there needs to be a credible civilian government in Sudan before significant international assistance becomes available, I think, is, is an effective pressure point for moving the country back towards democracy.
1: On top of military coups, Africa has witnessed a new way of strongman rule by presidential coups, like what happened in Tunisia, where President Saied wrote his own constitution and organized a parliamentary election with. turnout as we saw last month and this month. How serious is using elections and tailored constitutions to legitimize a presidential coup?
6: It is a serious problem. And it goes to show that there can be civilian coups or auto coups as well as military coups. You know, these are cases where you may have an elected civilian leader, but then once in power, they remove many of the checks and balances that comprise a democracy. And we see this with the term limit extensions, as well as with efforts to. It's all legislatures or compromise independent judiciaries or constrain a free press in civil society. And so in many ways, these civilian coups are more difficult to recognize and then to respond to. But if we see that democracy is more than elections, it's also about the institutional checks and balances. And so when these are eroded, it needs to send a yellow or a red flag to regional and international actors that their treatment towards that government, their recognition of that government also, needs
1: to shift. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohamed (music) El-Shinawi. Russia has vowed continued support for Mali's military government in efforts against Islamist militants as Moscow seeks to shore up relations with its allies amid Western isolation because of its invasion of Ukraine. Annie Risenberg reports from Bamako, Mali.
7: Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov spoke in Bamako Tuesday alongside his Malian counterpart, Foreign Minister Abdullah Diop, at a news conference aired on state TV. Lavrov is visiting Mali after months of increasing cooperation between Russia and Mali following France's withdrawal from the country last year. Lavrov's speech was translated into French and broadcast live on ORTM television. <laughs> We have delivered very important aircraft, he says, and this has considerably increased the capacity of Malian armed forces to eradicate the terrorist threat. Mali has been fighting in an Islamist insurgency for more than a decade. Russia delivered several fighter jets and helicopters to Mali in August of last year. The French army intervened in Mali in 2013 after the north of the country was taken over by Islamist militants, but withdrew last year on concerns about Mali's military government working with Kremlin-backed Wagner Group mercenaries. Since France's withdrawal, the Malian government has denied claims that it is working with mercenaries, and claimed only to work with official Russian instructors. Mali has been under international scrutiny for cooperating with Russian Wagner mercenaries since last year, with the UN and several international human rights organizations calling for investigations of massacres committed by the mercenaries working with the Malian army. Lavrov and Jop both referenced efforts by the United Nations to investigate human rights abuses in Mali. Both ministers described those efforts as neo-colonial. with Jop claims, Claiming they are an effort to destabilize Mali. Rights groups and journalists reported on human rights abuse allegations committed by Russian mercenaries several times last year. Following one investigation, French broadcasts were banned from the country. Last week, UN experts called for an investigation into international crimes committed by the Wagner Group in Mali. Following testimony at a UN Security Council meeting on January 27th, Mali's military government expelled the chief of the UN Mission to Mali's Human Rights Division for destabilizing and subversive actions against the Malian government. Violence has continued to spread south in recent years, with several attacks in recent months near Bamako attributed to Islamist militants. In July of last year, Mali's main military base in Kati, 15 kilometers from Bamako, was attacked by Islamist militants. Annie Reisenberg for VOA News, Bamako, Mali.
1: And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yeheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24 7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokvilia Barro, and our engineer, Bob Bass, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.